Our scripture today comes from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. John 14, 1 through 14. If you're able, please stand while we read God's word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Beth. And good morning. It's my great privilege to be in God's word with you this morning. I I do want to repeat it one more time. Uh, We are having a baptism uh, right after the service. So don't go away. You can go get your, your kids, but then uh, meet us out front uh, for at, by the baptismal pool. So this morning we continue our study in the Gospel of John. We're in the second half of the book. As Pastor John mentioned last week, some Bible commentators divide the Gospel of John into two books, into two sections. They're called the Book of Signs and the Book of Glory. They attest to or give testimony to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The second half of the Gospel of John, the book of glory, begins with chapter 13. In this section, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what comes next. Then John portrays the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Our text takes place today just hours before the crucifixion of Jesus. We'll see some of his final discourse, the, the final conversation that he has with his disciples. But before we get into our text, let's pray together. Father, as we open your word together, we ask that your Holy Spirit guide us into all truth. We acknowledge that without you, we are without light. We're still in the dark because your word is spiritually discerned. 
We also ask that your Holy Spirit would convict us, purify us, and apply your word to our lives. Ultimately, the application of your word comes from your Holy Spirit, not the preacher. Help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. May we say with the psalmist, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Show us more of your glory. Teach us to obey. Stir our affections for Jesus. Amen. The disciples of Jesus were having a bad night. They had just had their feet washed by the one they call Master. They were told that Jesus would be betrayed by one of them. It was stated that Peter, the boldest of them all, would deny Jesus that very night. But the hardest thing was when they were told that Jesus was leaving them. Chapter 14 begins with Jesus acknowledging the disciples' feelings. Let not your hearts be troubled. The Greek word translated troubled in verse 1 means agitated or stirred up. It's like their emotions were in a mixing bowl. First one emotion and then another came to the surface. It's the same Greek word used for stir sky waters at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. As Pastor Scott pointed out a couple of weeks ago, it's also the same word used to describe Jesus' emotional state that night. Chapter 13, verse 21 says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He's about to be betrayed by one of the 12, a disciple that he chose, someone that he called friend. And in just a few hours, he will be arrested tried, beaten, whipped, and crucified. Just when the disciples should have rallied around Jesus, he comforts them. On the verge of experiencing God's wrath for our sins, Jesus offers comfort to his disciples. Notice that the comfort is linked to two imperatives, two commands, believe in God believe also in me. Our comfort comes through faith. I love how scripture doesn't just gloss over the troubles of this fallen world. It's very upfront about it. The Psalms are filled with God's people turning to him in faith when their hearts are troubled. One of the most memorized Psalms is Psalm 23. David says in Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In Psalm 119.50, it says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promises give life. The psalmist is comforted when he has faith in the promises of God. Likewise, in our passage, Jesus comforts his disciples by exhorting them to believe. But what does this mean? Don't the disciples already believe in Jesus? In the Gospel of John, we've seen how some people believed in Jesus, but it 
wasn't a saving faith. It was an easy believism. But that wasn't the disciples' problem. They were ready to die for him. The 11 disciples already have a saving faith. So why does Jesus exhort them to believe? The Greek word for believe here carries with it the idea of placing confidence in the object of your faith. Jesus is saying, when your hearts are troubled, trust me. The disciples' core problem is a lack of trust. They acknowledge him as Lord, but still find it hard to trust him in their day-to-day walk with him. I don't know about you, but that hits pretty close to home. So how does Jesus address their lack of trust? Jesus addresses their lack of trust by giving them four reasons to trust him. These are four promises that, when trusted, bring comfort to the troubled heart. This comfort is not just for the disciples that night, but for all of us who are followers of Jesus. In verses 1 to 3, we see comfort from trusting Christ's welcome. In verses 4 to 6, comfort from trusting Christ's way. In 7 to 11, comfort from trusting Christ's words. And 11 to 14, comfort from trusting Christ's works. First, we find comfort from trusting Christ's welcome. Look at verses 1 and 2. Let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you this is going away? But it is actually to their advantage that he goes away. Why? Because he goes to prepare a place for them. He prepares a welcome for them like no welcome they have ever had. Where is he preparing the welcome? In his Father's house which means heaven. Heaven is a real place. The word place is used twice in verses two and three. Some people don't believe this, but if it's not a real place, what is Jesus preparing? Revelation 21 and 22 describe heaven in great detail. We're told about its physical dimensions, its gates, its streets, dwelling place. The King James translates it as mansions, but it's more natural to think about a dwelling place within a house as being a room or a suite or an apartment. This place is prepared with you in mind. The welcome is perfectly designed for you. Children, how many of you have ever had a sleepover? You had a friend come spend the night at your house, raise your hand. Okay, how many of you, before your friend ever got there, were already thinking about all the fun things you could do? Anyone? Okay, all right, thank you. We just had our third annual grand camp. Each year, we invite the grandkids, as they become old enough, to spend a week with us while their parents go on vacation. So we carefully prepare a week full of activities. We plan special treats. We think about things that they will enjoy. And if we do this for Grand Camp, how much more is Jesus preparing a special place for you? 
This isn't a temporary dwelling place like Grand Camp. Jesus isn't preparing a tabernacle for us. It's a permanent room or suite or apartment. It's home. It's what we long for. C.S. Lewis talks about inconsolable longing for heaven. In his book, The Problem with Pain, he writes, all the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of it, tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. But if it should ever really become manifest, if there ever came an echo that did not die away, but swelled into the sound itself, you would know it. Beyond all possibility of doubt, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. King Solomon put it even more succinctly in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He said, God has put eternity into the hearts of man. Nothing in this world can satisfy that longing because we were made for another world. Verse 3 starts out, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Not only is Jesus preparing a place for us, but he will personally come back and take us there himself. He's talking about his second coming. And here's the best part, that where I am, you may be also. The point of our passage today isn't how lavish the room or suite or apartment is, but that there's a place for every disciple of Jesus, and we will be with him. Heaven isn't wonderful beyond what the eye has seen or the ear heard or has entered into the heart of man because the streets are made of gold as cool as that is, but heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. One day we will go running into the arms of Jesus, the one who receives us with joy, the one who loved us when we were still sinners, the one who died to save us, faithful in the Trinity, and yet he invites us to enjoy him forever. A.W. Tozer said, let no one apologize for the powerful emphasis Christianity lays upon the doctrine of the world to come. Right there lies its immense superiority to everything else within the whole sphere of human thought or experience. We do well to think of the long tomorrow. What is the application for us today? To think of the long tomorrow. When you're experiencing the mixing bowl of emotions, when your heart is troubled, when you wonder if God cares, let thoughts of heaven assail your doubt. Meditate on his promises. Pray to the one who prepares a place for us. Read in scripture what joys await us in that place. Because when it seems like the day will never end, think of the long tomorrow. Remember that there is one day that will go on forever, and it is a good day. Our view of heaven reflects our view of Jesus. The more we see and understand and love Jesus now, the more we will anticipate and be comforted by the hope of heaven. If you do not know Jesus, 
trust him now. Repent and put your faith in him. Understand that on the cross, God placed our sins on him and gave us the righteousness of Christ. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Next, our troubled hearts find comfort from trusting Christ's way. Look at verses four to six. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the Gospel of John, there are seven signs or attesting miracles and seven I am statements. This is the sixth I am. We'll see the seventh when we get to chapter 15. I am is one of God's names for himself from the Old Testament. Moses had said, if the people ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. By taking the name of God, Jesus is claiming to be God. He's not a way to God, but the way, the exclusive way to God. God has always prescribed that we come to him his way. In Genesis chapter 4, Abel's offering was accepted. But Cain tried to make an offering to God his own way, and it was rejected. God rejects human invention in how to come to him. The law of Moses was very specific in what sacrifices to offer and how to offer them. In the tabernacle, only the high priest could make an offering in the Holy of Holies, and then it was only once a year. Christianity is exclusive, but it's not exclusive in a worldly sense, not like an exclusive country club that only one path. Christianity is not exclusive because of who it lets in, but because there is only one way to get in. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. There's our daily dose of humility. God chose the low so that no human being could boast. Christ is the exclusive way to the Father. It's no wonder that the early Christians were called followers of the way. Jesus told his disciples, you know the way. It's not a future promise, but a current one. He doesn't say, you will know the way to heaven. They already know it because they already know him. Jesus doesn't just show us the way. He is the way. Every religion has some kind of roadmap to God, whether it's through good works, good karma, the eightfold path, martyrdom, or penance. People sense that their way to God is blocked. In the Old Testament, a heavy curtain called a veil hung in the temple between the people and the Holy of Holies. 
It wasn't what really separated them from the presence of God, but it was a symbol of that separation. What really separates us from God is sin. The human race has a sin problem. God is a holy God and we are a sinful people. We need a way to God. Through the cross, Jesus is our way to God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 2, 24. When Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. There's now a solution to our sin problem. We now have a mediator between God and man. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, Titus 2.5. Jesus is the exclusive mediator. There is no other name we can call on for salvation. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. Notice that Jesus doesn't just say in our text that he's the way. The whole phrase is his answer to Thomas. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the way to God because he is the truth of God and he gives the life of God to us. He doesn't just tell us the truth. He embodies the truth. As we recited earlier from the Christ hymn in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the supreme revelation of God. Jesus didn't just live a good life. He is life. He is the resurrection and the life. He conquers sin and death. What does this mean for us practically? Christians are often criticized for claiming that Jesus is the only way to God. But after all, there are billions of non-Christians in the world that believe differently. So why do we think we're right when there's so many that believe differently? If Jesus was just one more religious leader out of countless others, they would have a point. But if Jesus is in fact God, that puts his claim in an entirely different light. As an infinite being, God can certainly tell us if there's one way to him or many. In our passage, Jesus can say, I am the way and the truth and the life because he is God. He's the Messiah. He's the great I am. Jesus told his disciples, you know the way to God. You can take comfort in this. You don't have to keep searching. You don't have to spend your whole life never knowing. If you're a follower of Jesus, because that way is a person, a person who loves you and has bought you with a price. And one day, in the long tomorrow, you will stand before his presence. Jude writes of that day, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. 
Next, we can find comfort from trusting Christ's words and his works. In verse 10, Jesus talks about the authority of his words that he speaks. Then, in the last part of verse 11, he transitions from words to works. So we'll break this into two sections, starting with his words. In verse 7, through the first part of verse 11, Jesus tells his disciples that there's profound unity between the Father and the Son, so much so that the presence of the Son is the presence of the Father. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus says, I have showed you the Father. He's here as close to you as I am. I count five times in verses 7 through 11 where Jesus talks about the unity between the Son and the Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, verse 7. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, verse 9. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, verse 10? Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, verse 11. When Philip asks to see the Father, most Bible commentators believe that he's asking for a theophany, a visible manifestation of God. Theophany comes from the Greek words theos, meaning God, and phanin, meaning to show, to show God. D.A. Carson writes, Philip thus joins the queue of human beings through the ages who have rightly understood that there can be no higher experience, no greater good than seeing God as he is in unimaginable splendor and transcendent glory. There's some partial theophanies in the Old Testament. In Exodus 33, Moses said to God, please show me your glory. So God said, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Isaiah was granted a vision in which he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah later predicted that in the day of the Messiah, the glory of the Lord would be revealed. In verse 9, Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, another clear claim to deity. Let's talk for a minute about what verse 9 is not saying. It's not saying that Jesus and the Father are one person. Scripture clearly teaches us three things about God. God is three persons. Each of the three is fully God. And there is one God. There's a doctrinal error called modalism, which teaches that God is one person who appears to us in three different forms or modes, hence its name, modalism. But this teaching ignores all the scripture which shows that the three persons of the Trinity are distinct individuals. For example, they deny that there were three separate persons at the baptism of Jesus. When the Father speaks from heaven, the Son is being baptized, and the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. Of the right understanding of God. We can never have an exhaustive understanding, but we can have a right one. For example, 
Modalism makes all of those instances where Jesus is praying to the Father an illusion or a charade. Jesus is fully God and fully man, but modalism loses the humanity of Jesus praying to the Father. Wayne Grudem points out that there are other things we lose with modalism. With modalism, the idea of the Son or the Holy Spirit interceding for us before God is lost. Modalism ultimately loses the heart of the doctrine of the atonement. That is, the idea that God sent his Son as a substitutionary sacrifice, that the Son bore the wrath of God in our place, and that the Father, representing the interests of the Trinity, saw the suffering of Christ and was satisfied. This section of our text is speaking of the oneness between the Son and the Father in the Godhead. They're, they're one, they are not the same. The Father dwells in the Son, and the Son dwells in the Father, but this does not obliterate their uniqueness. Finally, we find comfort from trusting Christ's works. Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Chapter 14 starts out with Jesus talking about his imminent departure to prepare a place, a, a welcome for his followers. Thomas and Philip asked questions that indicated that the disciples didn't understand the way in which the Father was present in the words and the works of Jesus. Jesus says in verse 11 that if the disciples don't believe on account of his words, they should consider the witness added by his works. Then in verse 12, Jesus moves toward equipping his disciples for their future mission. What he says is startling. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Greater works than Jesus? What are the greater works that Jesus is referring to? Does he mean more spectacular or more supernatural? It's hard to ima imagine more amazing works or, or miracles than raising Lazarus from the dead, feeding the 5,000, calming the sea, or walking on water. Is that what he means here? There are two keys to understanding this text. The first and the last part of verse 12 give us context for the greater works statement. The first key tells us that the greater works don't just apply to the apostles, but to whoever believes in Jesus. That includes us. That means the church from Pentecost until Jesus comes again. The second key is in the last part of the verse. It tells us that whoever believes in Jesus will perform greater works because he is going to his Father. Because Jesus goes to the Father, the Holy Spirit will come and the disciples will go into all the earth. Because Jesus goes to the Father, a great multitude that no one can number will stand before the Lamb from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages. 
Greater works isn't necessarily more spectacular miracles, but the worldwide reach of the gospel. It's the difference between the works that Jesus did while he was here on earth and what Jesus then tells us that these greater works will be aided by prayer in his name. Please look with me in verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in his name, I will do it. So children, have you ever wondered why people often say in Jesus's name at the end of their prayer? Yeah, this verse is the reason. It says, um, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Now, unfortunately, this verse is often misunderstood, saying in Jesus' incantation. So it doesn't obligate God to grant every selfish request that people make. The context here is greater works. Praying in Jesus' name is a source of power for the proclamation of the gospel throughout the whole earth. It is so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Praying in his name doesn't mean tacking on the phrase in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer. Although there's nothing wrong with that. I, I do that myself. But praying in Jesus' name is praying in accord with his will and his person. It's bringing a request to Jesus that you know he could sign his name to. What is the application for us today? The application is the Great Commission. Jesus has commissioned us to go and make disciples of all nations. And behold, it says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you want comfort for your troubled heart? Then carry out the Great Commission and take comfort in the presence of Jesus. Because in carrying out the Great Commission, he is with you always. Do you want comfort for your troubled heart? Then carry out the Great Commission and do greater works. You're now part of something that's bigger than yourself. It's the greatest endeavor in the history of mankind. Do you want comfort for your troubled heart? Then carry out the Great Commission and receive power for the proclamation of the gospel by praying in his name. It will bring joy to your soul. Join Jesus in his mission. He's not pushing us out the door. He's not saying, go do this on your own. He's saying, this is what I'm already doing. I'm already at work. It's amazing, and you're invited to be a part of it. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider your promises to us, we are overwhelmed by your grace. Our future is secure in you. We're already, you are already there preparing a place for us. And we already know the way to get there because that way is a person. Grow us in our understanding and love of Jesus. Father, you've also invited us to be part of your work. Help us to see more of you as we walk in obedience to the commission that you have given us. Help us to bring glory to the name of Jesus. Amen.